0: All right, it is good to see you guys this morning. Boy, Pastor Jeff just stole my whole message with the palm branches and the, I hope, yeah. Anyway, hey, kids, you guys are dismissed. So elementary kids, you guys are out. And youth group, you guys are out today as well, even though it's the first Sunday. Uh, You're gonna be in with us next Sunday, so we figured you could go out uh, this Sunday. So, um, hey, I just have a couple quick uh, notes on those announcements. Um, Pastor Jeff did a great job highlighting the importance of being baptized. If you've never been baptized, you need to be baptized, and what exactly are you waiting for to be baptized, right? That's the question. So um, if you've never been part of a baptism here, we do them sort of as part of the service. Um, There's a a big sort of a baptismal uh, tank, if you will, Um, and we're not able to get it up here, but we take it right out on the patio, So at the end of our service, we all just sort of file out there and we finish our service out there on the patio with worship and with baptisms. Here's the deal. If nobody's going to get baptized, we're not dragging that thing out there and filling it up with water. Amen? Amen? Amen. So the point is, if you want to be baptized, please let one of us know today or email the church office in the first half of this week. Um, just so if no one wants to be baptized, that's okay. I just assume everybody here is already baptized, but uh, we're happy to bring it out there and set it up. What a great day to be baptized on Easter Sunday. Um, and then the other thing I had to mention, I don't have any idea what it is now. It's going to be super important. Baptisms, what? What? The trip, sign up for Israel. Oh, so men. Okay, yeah, men. So, men, you guys absolutely need to sign up for the men's getaway. It's uh, not Easter weekend or the weekend after, but it's coming up quickly in April. Um, And all you need to do to sign up, either respond to the evite that you got uh, in your email, or just wander over to the info table and just tell Helena, hey, sign me up. And then once you're signed up, we'll start chasing everybody down Um, for the money. It's actually remarkably cheap. Uh, If you want to come just for the day on Saturday, I think it's 40 bucks. If you want to come and stay over Friday night into Saturday, I think it's just 60 bucks. And that includes all of your food, and it includes all your retreat stuff, and, uh, and your bed for the night, and things like that. So we want all the guys to be at that thing um, and then we want everybody, as Pastor Jeff said, to be here on the 23rd on Sunday morning. Now, typically when I'm not gonna be teaching on a Sunday morning, I don't tell anybody because I don't want anybody not to come because they think I'm not here. Now, this time that I'm not teaching, I'm telling everybody because I want everybody to be here. I promise you, you'll be super ministered to. Um, pastor Dave is, um, is my pastor. So um, I would love you to come out and to be blessed by him. He's a gifted, gifted Bible teacher and just has a real heart for God's people. Um, So anyway, make sure you're here on the 23rd. So with all of that being said, we're going to take a bit of a break from our study through the book of Mark. Of course, next week we'll celebrate Easter, but this week we're going to join in with other believers all around the globe as we commemorate Palm Sunday, which of course is the Sunday before Jesus was crucified, it's the date of what we call his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And interesting, we've just looked in Mark's gospel at the feeding of the 5,000, and we talked about the fact that, remarkably, it's the only miracle, aside from the resurrection, which is recorded by all four of the gospel authors. Now, next in line, recorded by all four of the gospel authors, is today's story. The Palm Sunday account, the account of the triumphal entry, is the next thing that's recorded in all four gospel accounts, which is to say, once again, that it is important and that it really made an impact on the disciples and on the, the authors of those gospel accounts and that the Holy Spirit has included it in all four of those books because it is absolutely a a watershed moment which really sets in motion the crisis of everything that is to come during this last week of Jesus' life. And this morning I want to look at it from John's perspective, because I think that there's a wonderful kind of a connection to what we've been studying in Mark's account of Jesus' life, just really that picture of Jesus as the servant of all. So you can turn with me to John chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles that you can use, and if you just raise your hands will bring one to you. But we'll be looking this morning at John chapter 12 and the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. And I'm sure that you have heard this story taught many times, probably once a year for as many years as you've been a Christian, which I know for for some might just be a couple times. Some of you may be hearing this for the 60th or even 70th time, right? And we're all used to thinking of Palm Sunday as this day of great celebration, and indeed it was, and and it still is, um, but not for the reasons which we usually think of. You know, we think about the day as Jesus is, you know, sort of welcomed as the coming king. The people, as Pastor Jeff said, are waving these palm branches in his honor. Um, But when we really consider the rest of the story, what we find is, of course, a very different story. You know, the Gospels paint this sort of a picture of these great expectations, right, you know, crowned with these acclamations of Hosanna here on Sunday, and then followed up not even a week later with this condemnation of the cries to crucify him by the time we come to Friday. And in some cases, most probably by the very same people. And so it's this really powerful picture of Palm Sunday and of the triumphal entry that I think prompts a very deep question that each of us as believers need to really answer. Uh, Actually, each of us just as human beings need to answer in our own hearts. So let's pray and just ask the Lord to bless um, as we go to his word. So Father, we do thank you Lord for this morning and we thank you for this opportunity to commemorate what is such an important day and the life of your son, Lord. We pray that your scriptures would come alive to us this morning, Lord. We pray that your spirit would be our teacher. Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear what he desires to speak to each of us this morning, Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So just before this point in the ministry of Jesus, again, we're going to jump ahead quite a bit from where we are in Mark, but John tells us, you remember John chapter 10, we all remember that story Jesus and his three friends, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. We remember Lazarus had gotten sick and actually died, and yet then Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead after he'd been dead for four days. And you might remember at the end of that text that the Jewish leaders, rather than admitting That this great miracle that Jesus had performed, rather than admitting that that proved that he was the Messiah, instead, they now became even more paranoid that Jesus was going to cause problems for them with the Romans. And they decided officially, for yet another time, that Jesus had to die and it had to be soon. And so at that point, remember, Jesus heads just a little bit further north to a small village named Ephraim to kind of to hang out, right, until the time was right for him to come back into the city of Jerusalem. And so this chapter, chapter 12, John actually starts out telling us some of the things that happened just outside of Jerusalem before that So the Passover and the cross, we know, are just about a week away. And as we jump into verse 1, we find Jesus there with his friends. It says in verse 1 that then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. And there they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. So this is now the Saturday before Good Friday, if you will. Right? So while the the Jewish leaders we know they're off plotting to kill Jesus, here his friends are honoring him with this feast here at Bethany. Mark tells us that this is at the home of a man named Simon who was a leper who Jesus had just healed. And it looks like Lazarus, of course, is also one of the guests of honor, right? Makes sense, Lazarus has been getting all kinds of attention recently. How often do you get to meet someone who was dead for four days, right? We see Martha is there, and even though it's not their home, she's busy serving the meal. And as we're going to read next, true to their personalities, here Martha's busily serving, and we see Mary, once again, is extravagantly worshiping. It says in verse 3 that then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. And so this sets off, you know, that whole beautiful account of Mary's wonderful gift to Jesus, right? Nothing less than this pure act of love and a a true act of worship on her part. And it's something really that we need to consider on a different day. Because right? it's a whole day in and of itself. But then, you know, that sets off, if you glance at verses four through eight, it sets off, you know, there's that objection from Judas, and then followed up by a lesson from Jesus, really about the fact that, you know, our, our intimacy with him and our devotion to him really has to always come over and above uh, our service for him. So what I want to do is jump down. We're going to jump down into verse 9, and we're going to kind of pick it up there. Here, here, as Jesus is spending this intimate time at Bethany with his friends, this controversy that's surrounding him, we see here it's continuing to escalate. It says in verse 9 that then a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests took counsel that they might also put Lazarus to death because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. So just the fact... Right, that Lazarus is this walking miracle, now it has also put him right into the crosshairs. Right, These Jewish leaders wanted to kill him as well as Jesus. It's like something out of a mafia movie, right? After all, here Lazarus, he's drawing people to Jesus, so he just needed to be eliminated. And of course, it goes without saying, it's just so heartbreaking how blind people can be as a result of you know, their rejection of the Lord. You know, he had just raised a man from the dead, and yet here the, these religious leaders are blindly rejecting the very miracles that were given that were supposed to have opened their eyes to the fact that Jesus was the very Messiah that the scriptures had promised. Here he's been healing the sick He's been raising the dead. He's been fulfilling prophecy right before their eyes, and yet they simply refused to believe who he was. And so the very next thing that John pivots to, if you will, in his account, he kind of shifts the scene from this private sort of a a gathering there in Bethany now to a very public and noisy parade in Jerusalem because it is the next landmark event that should have told everyone exactly who Jesus is and exactly what it was that he was about beyond any shadow of a doubt. So we turn from kind of looking at just at Jesus and his friends now to looking at Jesus and the Passover pilgrims, and now this really is the triumphal entry. So we've gone from what happened just outside of the city before that day, now to actually coming into Jerusalem, on that day, So it says in verse 12 that the next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So let's just pause there really quick. So here we are, the, the Jewish leaders, right, they had missed the point. And yet the, there's this Passover crowd that is now about to greet Jesus as the coming king. Right, this great multitude that they're talking about, this is this crowd that would have overwhelmed Jerusalem each and every year for the Passover. The Passover, of course, the greatest holiday in all the Jewish calendar. Historians estimate that at the time of the Passover, each year, the city of Jerusalem, which probably normally had a population of about 50,000, that it would swell to upwards of more than a million people for the Passover, right? The Passover, of course, is that feast that really commemorated God's great deliverance of his people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. It was really the celebration of the birth of the Jewish nation. And so what it meant is that every Jew was supposed to make their way up to Jerusalem at this time for this celebration. Understand, Jerusalem at this point would have been absolutely bustling just with Jewish community, right? Crowded and just filled with this incredible anticipation. They are gathered there simply to think about and to really remember God's great deliverance of them, here happening right at the time when Jesus' popularity amongst the people has risen to this maximum capacity, right? Tensions are hot and expectations are high on this day as this multitude goes into the city. Right there it says hearing that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now, I think we need to notice that it was significant, it was important to John, and to the Holy Spirit, that we know that this was Sunday, the next day, right? He tells us here very clearly, it's the day after the supper that we just saw. So this day we know would have been chronologically, it would have been the 10th of Nisan, right? Or by our calendar, the sixth day of April, it would have been four days before the Passover, Again, it is not at all by coincidence, the very day prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years previously. In Daniel chapter nine it says that, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, right? Literally seven sevens, 62 sevens, or 69 seven-year periods, or 483 years, right? So 483 years from March 14th, 444 BC, which we know is the day that Artaxerxes gave Nehemiah the charge to go rebuild the city of Jerusalem. So 483 years, that exact day was April 6th AD 32. It was the next day mentioned here in verse 12 as Jesus is entering Jerusalem which is all to say this is a day that the people and certainly the religious leaders this is a day that they should have had circled on their calendars. It's no wonder this is why Luke tells us that as Jesus approached the city, Luke says that Jesus stopped. It says in Luke 19.41 that as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. Because they should have known the day, the exact day of his arrival. And as we read on it almost seems like maybe they did because look at how they greet him in the very next verse it says that the multitude verse 13 took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord the king of Israel so look at these people here right they are shouting words straight from the Messianic Psalm 118 right verses 25 and verses 26 that cry Hosanna simply means save us now right so as Jesus now is making his way into Jerusalem and approaching they you know his reputation has preceded him here and this is the moment Right? The long-awaited deliverer is here. So on this day, this multitude here, they have just received Jesus as this triumphant Messiah, the King of Israel. The problem is, they didn't really understand the kind of king that Jesus was. And they certainly didn't understand the kind of king that they actually needed. Because understand that the waving of these palm branches, it was a, a symbol of Jewish nationalism, right, of, of Jewish revolution and of rebellion, right? It was a symbol that had begun about 200 years earlier when they had hailed their last Great deliverer, Judas Maccabeus, right? He was the one who delivered them from the oppression of the Syrians. And so, consequently, what people are actually saying here as they're waving these branches and crying Hosanna to Jesus, they're basically saying, Hey, be Judas Maccabeus again. Deliver us now, this time, from the Romans, who we knew. You know, we know they were occupying their land, they're ruling over them at this point as a part of the monstrous Roman Empire, right? So the word Hosanna, it simply means save us now. So they were kind of saying, we want you to overthrow the Roman yoke politically. We want you to help us economically. We want you to lead us militarily, right? We want you to save us now. And they think this is the moment. This is the moment when they're about to be delivered from the Roman tyranny and when the kingdom of David is finally going to be reestablished. In their minds, this is the time when the reign of Messiah and God's kingdom is now here. So they see this as a moment to just take back their lives again and reclaim their land again and reclaim their identity. So understanding this, Right? Understanding how politically charged this scene is, it is no wonder that as this week went on and they realized that none of that was it Jesus' intent, naturally they turned against him because they were disappointed in him and they're disillusioned with him because they would understand very quickly that Jesus had a very different agenda than a political one. He had a very different agenda than a national one, a very different agenda than any kind of a material one. So instead of crying, Hosanna, they start to cry, crucify him. And I'm afraid that this can still sadly be so true today whether it's for a Christian individually or churches corporately, right? We can all sort of mobilize politically for this cause or or for this thing, right? To try to change our government or change our economy or change our society or or whatever it is that we think that the Lord Jesus needs to change for us. We're all about that kind of cry, but very few Christians Are interested in a cross that talks about dying to self, right? Because it's one thing to shout at a political parade, but it's altogether something different to stand at the foot of the cross. So what I want you to understand is that this moment, this is basically a patriotic rally. This is a politically charged, right? We've seen a lot of that on TV, right? This is a politically charged moment as these multitudes were looking to Jesus purely as a political deliverer, right? Bring this national prosperity. We're looking for political overthrow. Even though, as we read on, we're gonna see that every single thing he did here, just as he entered into the city, was a very clear picture that he was about something else entirely. His entry was truly triumphal, but not at all in the way that they thought. Look at verses 14 and 15, because it says that then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, he sat on it. As it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now put a star by this because it's important right here in just this one detail. Jesus was showing them, if they'd been paying attention, that his primary purpose was not at all to make war against the Romans, but that he was there to bring peace with God. He's riding in here on a donkey. It's a direct fulfillment of a very well-known messianic prophecy, Zechariah chapter 9, which says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So, right? so this prophecy clearly telling us that their conquering king was gonna enter Jerusalem, not riding on a great stallion, right? the way that the, the Romans and the pagan kings would ride into war, right? but on a donkey, an animal of peace. Indeed, it was, to, it was time to save the people, but it was gonna come in a different way. Right? Instead of simply wiping out the Romans, Jesus was here to wipe out a far greater threat than that. He was here to wipe out the penalty of their sins and to bring peace, but not a political peace, but a spiritual one. Jesus was here to bring the peace of God by first establishing peace with God. Romans 5.1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God Through our Lord Jesus Christ, Colossians chapter 1, that by him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, heaven made peace through the blood of his cross. So, the peace that the Messiah was going to bring and that Jesus brought, it was going to come through his great sacrifice on the cross just days from now, and it would be a spiritual one, not a political one. And here's what I think is kind of amazing about this passage. Here they're looking for this political deliverer, right? And Jesus knows it. And he simply could have run with it, right? But he doesn't. He doesn't play their game at all. And instead, what he does is he takes this public moment to make it clear and to make it perfectly clear that he is on a completely different kind of path. And instead, he really defines for them, yet again, and even I think in the face of this nationalistic fervor that he defines what it is he's all about and what his kingdom is all about. Notice he doesn't rebuke them, he doesn't stop them from hailing him as a king. You know, this is the point in Luke's account where the religious leaders tell Jesus to tell the people to be quiet. And this is where Jesus says, you know, I tell you that if these should keep silent, what? The stones would immediately cry out because their cries were correct, right? He is the king. He is God's anointed one. He is the Messiah. And in fact, he is here to provide rescue. He's here to save, but just not in the way that anyone thinks. And understand that this one little donkey detail is a critical one. Because it is this, this was a picture that Jesus used to completely divine himself, d- d- define himself, pardon me. And in this one move, he just completely flips this whole thing on its head. He is a king, but he is the humble king. right? He is the servant king. And it's just exactly the way that Mark pictures him when he says that even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, we today, we probably don't think of a donkey as being very kingly. But to the Jews, the donkey was actually the royal animal of Jewish monarchs, right? In the, in the Bible, a donkey is a sign of humility and of strength and of service. And strangely enough, Of regal authority. There's examples of it in Genesis and Judges and the Samuels and Kings and Chronicles. And when a king approached a city riding a stallion, it was a sign that he was there to bring war. But when a king approached a city on a humble donkey, it meant that he came in peace and that he meant to bring peace to that city. And so what Jesus is doing here is a very deliberate act. Not only did it declare his identity as the Messiah, but it also helped to clarify and really define the mission of the Messiah, which was to bring peace. He was presenting himself to the people, offering himself to the people at precisely this moment when Jesus would have just, when, when Jerusalem would have just been surging with all of these Jews from all over the world. He is claiming in a big, bold, public way that he is nothing less than the anointed one of God. And this is important because we think about the fact that we've seen so far that Jesus usually tried to not have anyone know who he was. We've seen him in Mark, right? He's moving around quietly. He's sort of preferring to try to stay out of the limelight. So many times you see him say, look, see that you tell no one that I've just healed you. Over and over in John's Gospel, you see, you know, he avoids this controversy with the religious leaders because he keeps saying what? He says, my hour has not yet come, and yet now it had. Right, according to that perfect prophetic timeline, today was the day. This is the day that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem in this incredible procession, this very powerful, scriptural, prophetic picture. He's riding in as the servant king and the promised Messiah. He's bringing this kingdom into Jerusalem that day. Now, for you history buffs, well, and even for you not history buffs because you've got to sit through it anyway, but what's interesting is that history tells us that this per- procession of Jesus into Jerusalem that day, that wasn't the only procession that the city saw on that day. Because in the year AD 32, the Roman historians record that the Roman governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, also led a procession of a Roman cavalry, and all these Roman centurions, he led a procession right into the city of Jerusalem, but over on the other side of Jerusalem, on this very same day also in anticipation of the Passover. Understand Jerusalem at that time was a a walled city, right? The whole city was enclosed by these protective walls and these series of gates that would give you access into the city and of course they would close the gates at night and, and during times when the city was under siege. Now Jesus entered Jerusalem on this day through what's called the Eastern Gate or the Golden Gate, and it's on the eastern side of the city. It's right at the base of the Mount of Olives, right? By the way, this is exactly how the Messiah was prophesied to come from the east down the Mount of Olives into the city. While on that very same day on the other side of the city... Pilate would have very likely entered through the Jaffa gate. It was the main gate on the western side of the city, the very opposite side from where Jesus just came, because Pilate would have just come from the western end of the country, from his usual home out at Caesarea Maritima, right? Or Caesarea on the sea, right? That was the real seat of kind of Roman power in the region. It was this beautiful sea, it was Club Med, right? Built by Herod. Now, Pilate wasn't there in Jerusalem because he wanted to be, he was there because he had to be, because it was the standard practice of the Roman governors who governed over Judea that they always had to be in Jerusalem during these major festivals. Again, it wasn't because they cared at all about their Jewish subjects, but they were there to handle business in case there was trouble, and especially during this one, during the Passover. Because right, to the Romans, all they, this was this sort of a strange Jewish festival that the Romans still allowed them to have. They knew that somehow it celebrated the liberation of the Jews from another empire that had enslaved them, Right, the Empire of Egypt. So they knew that this was a time when Jewish nationalistic expectations would run high just the way we've said that they were on this day. So Pilate had traveled with this contingent of Rome's finest coming in from his preferred palace on the Med, now coming into kind of the stuffy, crowded sort of, you know, head the capital there of the Jews at Jerusalem, and he has brought this huge contingent of troops with him just to keep a watchful eye on the city for the week. And this procession of Pilate on this Sunday, just before the Passover, it was meant to send a message. It was meant to send a message to the Jews as they got started in their celebration. It was a clear reminder and a warning to anyone who might be plotting against the mighty empire of Rome. And this would have been a spectacular procession to remind the Jews that Rome had absolutely no tolerance for rebellion against its rule and that they had the might to back it up. It was a, a, a show of force just to intimidate the citizens of Jerusalem and we can just imagine what Pilate's procession was like, just the spectacle as he rode into the city that day. You know, no doubt drummers were beating some kind of a steady cadence as, as Pontius Pilate himself up there on a war horse leading, right? These hundreds and hundreds of Roman soldiers on horseback and on foot, Right. With each soldier, they would have been clad in this leather armor that would have been polished up and just glistening there. And on their heads, they had these you know, like hammered-out helmets that just reflected the sunlight, right. And of course, the swords in their, you know, in their in their sides and in their hands, they all carried these huge spears. Unless they were an archer, and then they had a mighty bow and all of these deadly arrows across their back, right. So Pilate's Procession was a clear demonstration of Roman imperial power. And it absolutely embodied all of the power and the glory and the violence of that kingdom empire that was ruling the world. While Jesus' procession, right, just across the city, he comes in in this humble way right, down this little path, down the Mount of Olives, right here riding this baby donkey. And it embodied a completely alternative vision. Not at all the the kingdom of man, right, but the kingdom of God, a very different kingdom with a very different kingdom economy, right? It embodied the complete peace and the tranquility of just that shalom that God would provide to his people. So we have these two opposing processions happening there on that day. And these two processions, I think so clearly, are two pictures of two kingdoms which still stand in such sharp contrast and which war for the lives and the allegiance and actually war for the souls of men and women each and every day. Because here's what's interesting, is beyond just being a show of imperial power, right, Pilate and his pre- procession was also making a very clear declaration of Roman imperial theology. Because at the time, a Roman emperor, Tiberius, at that moment when Pilate was representing him, the Roman emperor wasn't just viewed as the ruler of Rome, but they were also declared to be a son of God, declared to be God himself, right? It's emperor worship. It's what's called the Roman imperial worship. and it started back with Augustus 31 BC to 14 AD. They said that his father was nothing less than the god Apollo and there have been inscriptions that have been found related to him referring to him as the son of God, as Lord, as Savior, and as the one who brought peace on earth. And then all of his successors of course you know, who wouldn't want those titles, right? So they just kept taking those on. So we have these two processions. Again, a perfect picture of this, this contrast between kings and kingdoms. I think that was on display that day there in Jerusalem. And although so many of the common people thought that they were siding with Jesus, we know that they were doing so for the wrong reasons. They were siding with Jesus because they were hoping to get from Jesus the very same things that others thought that they would get from Rome, right? Prosperity and peace, but in a, a worldly way. Again, Jesus came, it was to, to save people, but it was to save them from their sins, dying on a cross, paying the penalty in their place. So Jesus knew this, but the multitude didn't. and it's amazing to consider. This multitude that, you know, they're quoting the scriptures. They're having the the scriptures fulfilled in front of them. And yet just days from now, they are going to willfully reject him because they simply didn't understand what he came to do. Even, look what John tells us in verse 16. He says this, that even his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Right, so here Jesus on the donkey and all of these people waving the palm branches and shouting Hosanna. They, all, they saw it all and yet the significance of it, he says, actually meant nothing to the disciples until after his death because they lacked the perspective of the cross and of the resurrection, right? Just like the nation, they were still blindly unaware, even the disciples at this point, that he'd come to die and solve a far greater problem than simply their oppression by Rome. So there's this perspective of the cross that really illuminates what it was that happened here today. And notice John points out it was specifically, it wasn't until Jesus was glorified. Right? It wasn't until he actually was crucified that they understood because it wasn't until he was crucified and then ascended to heaven that the Holy Spirit came. They were lacking the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it was then at that point that the Holy Spirit finally came upon the apostles. Then they could look back and they could put all of these pieces Together. And here's just a quick encouragement on a Palm Sunday morning heading into Easter week, right? Understand this as the people you're sharing with different people about your faith in Jesus and you're sharing your testimony about the ways that Jesus has transformed your life. It's important to understand, it is quite probable that they probably don't understand the message of the cross they probably don't understand truly what their deepest need is. They may not understand from what it is that they really need to be delivered. They may be interested in Jesus for all the wrong reasons, simply because he could end poverty or or homelessness or because he could eliminate stress from their lives, right? Financial stress or marital stress or emotional or work stress, right? And Jesus can do all of that, But what only he can do is pay the price for someone's sins and make them righteous and make them clean before the Father, right? As it says in Titus, that he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, right? That he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him, right? The people that you're sharing with likely don't understand any of this but let me encourage you keep sharing with them anyway right Paul tells us that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to we who are being saved he says it's the power of God so just try to think back to what you thought about the gospel before you were saved right think back to that time when it actually didn't make sense to you maybe it was foolishness to you at that point you know, before Jesus through his ministry of the Holy Spirit started opening up your heart and giving you understanding. Put yourself back in that place and then just think now how thankful you are that somebody loved you enough to just keep sharing and to keep ministering and to keep kind of bearing with you in your rebellion until you finally came to that point of brokenness and allowed Jesus in. And I wanna just encourage us all, since most of us here I know are believers, right? There are times when the things that happen to us in our life are sometimes just very confusing to us. Right, we think, you know, here I am, I'm following after Jesus, why is this happening to me? Why am I still dealing with this? Or why am I still suffering through that, right? And and when that happens, I think so often, like the disciples, we don't understand because sometimes we forget that perspective of the cross. We forget what it is that the Messiah Jesus actually came to do, and we forget the great work that he's already done in our life. And we sort of end up like the Palm Sunday pilgrims, right? We're looking to Jesus for the things that Pilate can provide, right? We're sort of like standing at the wrong parade, right? We always need to keep the perspective of the cross when we're confronted with those things in our life that we don't understand. So much of what was about to happen in this coming week made no sense even to Jesus' closest disciples. And here's the reason that I wanted us to look at this text in John, because it's just after this, right just after this kind of a this confusing sort of triumphal entry event but on this very same day just a few verses later jump down to verse 23 Jesus is about to make this very powerful statement to his disciples and to this group of Greeks that had asked for an audience with him look what it says in verses 23 through 26 it says Jesus answered them saying the hour has come Him my Father will honor. You know, in in this passage, Jesus makes it clear that he is on his own kind of triumphal entry, right? Jesus has his own path to glory, and it's not the one that was anticipated by the Passover pilgrims. It's not the path of the religious leaders. It's certainly not the path of Pilate's procession, but Jesus is on a path to glory that leads to death. Right? He's not traveling the road to revolution. He's traveling the road to Calvary. Right? And the, the path that he was traveling doesn't just lead triumphantly into Jerusalem, but it will lead through the streets of Jerusalem as he's mocked and jeered and spat upon just days from now. Right, this path that Jesus walked was a road that didn't end in the city, but it continued out to the other side of the city to a hill called Golgotha, right, to Calvary, to the place of the skull. Whereas Paul tells us he was about to be made sin for us and to suffer our death on a Roman cross in our place. And and this becomes, right, Palm Sunday becomes... This triumphal entry really becomes a turning point in Jesus' ministry, and for you Bible students, it is the turning point in John's gospel, because many people who study John's gospel almost separate it into two different books, if you will, here at chapter 12. They they consider chapters 1 through 11 to be called the book of signs, but then chapters 12 through 21, they call the book of glory. Because of this statement here where Jesus says that the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. This hour, right, that Jesus has talked about continually throughout this account, that my hour has not yet come, but here we are at this triumphal entry, this is the moment where Jesus says that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It has finally arrived and yet it hasn't arrived the way that people expected and not only that, but it will actually be the very opposite of what anyone could have ever imagined because this glorification that Jesus is talking about here is gonna be manifest through his gruesome death on the cross as he is exalted or lifted up on that pole and is crucified. This is not the lifting up or the exaltation that the people were expecting at all. And yet, it will be the sign that will draw all people to him. Right? This is the, the sign that produces much grain, as Jesus says here. It will, in fact, be the greatest sign of Jesus so far. It will be the sign for people everywhere to see and for all people everywhere to believe, right? The death of this one single seed of grain is what will produce this incredible harvest and birth this kingdom unlike any kingdom that they could possibly imagine. Remember, the people were looking for, and sometimes I think we can still be looking for, they were looking for Jesus to just overthrow all of their enemies, right? They were looking for this conquering Messiah, not for a suffering one. He was supposed to be the liberator. He was the son of David. He was like, you know, Judas Maccabeus who would violently overthrow enemies and uh, usher in the kingdom of God. But in these verses, what Jesus reveals is that his kingdom vision is very different than anyone else's. His vision of power and kingship, of authority and leadership is so very different, even very different than our own visions of those same things. Right? As different as those two different parades that were coming into Jerusalem that day. Because he's talking about the kingdom of heaven in a way that no one ever has, where death brings life and sacrifice brings honor. And yet what I don't want us to miss today is the fact that this text and the declaration that Jesus is making on this day, these words are not just about Jesus, are they? They're about every single one of us. Anyone who would follow after and try to serve him, and this is exactly where Jesus takes this right here on Palm Sunday, he calls us to follow him right through death and on to resurrection life. Right, through putting to death the things of this life so we can enjoy the things of kingdom life here on earth and then, of course, eternal life with him in heaven. So there's a clear call to follow him in death that day. You know, so if we just step back and let's just kind of paraphrase what's happening there on this Palm Sunday scenario, Jesus is watching the hysteria of these multitudes. He's looking at this politically charged moment, and then he here kind of infuses his heavenly perspective into all of this, and I believe he gives each one of us an invitation out of all of it. He says, look, you see all this talk and this excitement about reclaiming the kingdom and Jewish identity and the glory of Israel, and you want to reclaim this through violence and insurrection and violence and overthrow, and you want to take it back by force, kind of insistence, this grasping for your life, right? This is how the world looks at things, right? This is Pilate's Parade. And Jesus says, that will get you nowhere. It's not going to get you the kingdom. It's not going to usher in the glory. It's not going to bring you the peace that you're looking for. Jesus says, I'm not here for any of that. He says, I'm here for a greater kingdom. I'm here for a greater glory. So Jesus says, throw down your palm branch. Hand your life over to me if you want to truly find it. He says, come and follow me and put that branch down. Remember the palm branch, right? It represented these insurrectionist movements. It it represents like the taking back of our life and our rights by force. And Jesus says, no, that is not at all what I am here for at all. I'm here for you. Jesus says, I want your life. I'm not here so that you can take your life back up. I'm here so that you can lay it down. I'm here so that you can hand it over, so that you can give your life to me, so that I can live my life through you. Right? Jesus just wants to infuse us with his life. He wants to animate everything we are with his power and his life and his goodness so that then he can't help but just overflow right out of us and touch the world around us if we will just give our lives over to him right give him full authority over us and allow him to define for us the things that are right and the things that are wrong and the things that are good and the things that are bad right what what gives purpose and what doesn't If we'll just let him teach us how to live, let him teach us how to die and how to do everything in between those two things, right? He wants us to lose our lives by handing them over to him. And look what he says. He says, my father will honor you for it just as he will honor me. How much is wrapped up in those words? When we think about what Paul said to the Philippians, he's talking about Jesus. He says that he humbled himself, he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. And therefore, what? God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus says if anyone serves him that the Father also will honor them so we will get to share in that glory and honor that is due Jesus. That is astounding. This is a glory that nothing else in this life can possibly bring about. This is something that's not been seen or heard or even thought of. It's beyond compare. And Jesus says it can be ours if we just give him this life that we have. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it in his book, Mere Christianity. He says this. He says, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work, kind of like we're compartmentalizing and handing him a little bit, you know, of different parts of our life. Jesus says, I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will you myself. My own will shall become yours. So two different processions, right, representing two different kingdoms made their way into Jerusalem that day. And here we are 2,000 years later, faced with the same question, which procession are we in? Which procession do we want to be a part of? And as we finish up today, I have to tell you, there was actually, interestingly, there was a third procession, which would have also been coming into the city of Jerusalem that day. Because according to the book of Exodus, This was also the very day, right? Palm Sunday, the 10th of Nisan, the 6th of April, four days before the Feast of the Passover. But this was also the very day each year when every Jewish family that was celebrating the Passover would select a lamb to be their sacrifice. And then the priests would watch that lamb closely from the 10th to the 14th day of the month in order to make sure that that lamb was in the best of health, that it was without flaw and without blemish. We're talking thousands and thousands of lambs. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that one year they did a census of the number of lambs that were slain for Passover and the figure was 256, 500,000 lambs. Imagine that number. So here on this day of our text, right, In A.D. 32, we can picture, you know, Pilate's procession entering through a western gate. Here we have Jesus' procession entering through the eastern gate. And then we have these tens of thousands of innocent lambs also at that same moment being brought into Jerusalem through a more northern gate, through the sheep gate up near the north end of the city even as on that very day in the midst of all of the selecting and the inspecting, right, the true Lamb of God, right, the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, the true Lamb of God had just entered the holy city to be sacrificed for you and for me to take away the sins of the world. And no one saw him coming for who he was. Now, We know this, the next time Jesus rides into Jerusalem, right, the next time Israel sees their king, it's gonna be a radically different scenario, right? Revelation chapter 19, Zechariah chapter 14, tell us that this time when Jesus comes, he's gonna come in great glory. He is gonna come on a white horse. He's not coming in humility. And the big amen is that this time, each and every one of us who knows him, we're gonna come with him. So if you don't make it to Jerusalem with us on this trip, you're gonna get there, right? This time when he comes, the Bible says he's gonna descend down upon the Mount of Olives, down this very same mount with the the Palm Sunday Road takes him, and just when his foot touches down, it is gonna split the Mount of Olives in two. It's going to be a scene of total victory as he comes to defeat his enemies and truly to establish the millennial kingdom. It will be a truly triumphal entry, but it will be no more triumphal than the one we just saw in our text today. Because Jesus just came in this entry and defeated the greatest enemy known to mankind. And how thankful we are that we can celebrate this day, Palm Sunday, when Jesus came in humility riding on this baby donkey. right? Not on the road to revolution, to overthrow Rome, but on the road to Calvary to redeem our souls back to God and to call us to a life of death to call us to share in this victory and this glory and this honor that will be his as he is exalted and lifted up just days from now on the cross. Amen? So we're going to celebrate communion today and what better day to celebrate communion except maybe Easter, which maybe we'll just do it again next week, right? But I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up and as we celebrate communion today, Of course, when we celebrate communion, we look back at what Jesus did for us on the cross. We also look ahead to the promises of his return and that restoration. We also look within, don't we? We look within, Paul says that we need to examine ourselves to make sure we're not taking communion unworthily. Uh, If there are those things that you feel like are separating you that are a barrier between you and your intimacy with the Lord, this is your opportunity to consider the the, you know, the broken bread and to consider the, the cup um, and just to do some business with the Lord and to have those things cleansed and then to partake. and Because uh, as we partake, we remember and we celebrate the intimacy that we have with him. So as the kids start to minister, which they're going to do any moment now, they're going to start to minister just like that. As they do that, We'll pray, and then we'll just open up the communion tables, and you can come forward and get the elements and just take them back to your seat and spend some time just between you and the Lord. And then when you're ready, on your own, you can partake in the elements. And once everyone's done that, we'll we'll stand and we'll all sing together and just kind of close out uh, our service. Um, Communion here at Calvary Mountain View is what's called open communion. You don't have to be a member of our church to partake, which is good because we don't even have membership. If you show up and you're part of the body of Christ, you're a member. If you're a born-again believer and you've confessed your faith in Jesus Christ, then this communion today is for you. If you're not a believer then communion actually isn't for you because you're celebrating that work that he's done in your heart. You can still take communion with us. You just need to pray and invite him to come in and start that work. Invite him to forgive you of your sins, to redeem you to heaven, and then you can participate with us. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you so much for today. We do thank you for Palm Sunday, and we thank you for the powerful message that it gives to us each and every year. Lord, we pray for this time of communion that you would make it a special time, Lord, that it's something that though we do it often, Lord, that it's something that would never become common in our hearts, Lord. We pray that we would take it with a fresh, renewed sense and a view of the cross of Calvary. And so we thank you, Lord. We pray your blessing on this time and we ask it in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.